Good morning, Victory Life Church. Pastor Otto coming to you today. Welcome to church. Hey, I have something I'd like to share with you that's been on my heart this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but every now and then I will open up my Bible and open up my Bible app and look for the verse of the day. May I read to you the verses for today? They just really are heavy on my mind and heart. comes out of Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and following, and it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We are witnesses. You know, our main purpose as a church is to point people to Jesus who can change every life story. And I have to tell you, if I were to just really simplify everything that we do as a church it is simply to point people to Jesus and to be witnesses of this truth that I have just conveyed to you. That the God of heaven sent Jesus to earth and he died for our sins so that we could spend the rest of eternity with God. We are witnesses of this fact. That is why we do church. That is why we stand here on the stage and sing songs of worship to God. That's why Pastor Matt stands up here and preaches. That's why we have a children's ministry. That's why we have a youth ministry. It's very, very simple. It's simply to be witnesses of the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, and therefore we can spend eternity with him. So if you are new to Victory Life Church and you're just checking in for the first time, I just want to say to you, check us out at vlchurch.com. You'll find all, everything you need to know about who we are as a church. And there is a banner on our front page that says, New Here. You can click on that, fill out that information, and it will come straight to me. And I will communicate with you sometime this week. But please know, it's very simple. What we do as a church, it's very simple. And it's to bear witness to this truth that I have just conveyed to you in the pages of Scripture. Well, for the rest of our church, I have a few announcements that are very exciting that are upcoming over these next few weeks. Next Sunday for worship, we are going to do something very special. We are going to have a Victory Life Church hillside worship service. So that's kind of sort of out back, kind of out behind me. There's kind of a trajectory, a hillside, where we will be spread out as a congregation. So BYOC, bring your own chair. Uh, and bring your own blanket so that you, we can effectively social distance from one another. And we are going to have a great time of worship and hearing God's word here on our property in person next Sunday at 1025 a.m. So we are so excited about worshiping together, and we hope that you'll join us. In addition to that, uh, next Sunday, we are going to honor our 2020 graduates. And so if your child or if you who are listening are graduating this year and you're going on to college or you're going to a professional job, we want to honor you. So please let us know about your graduation. We want to celebrate you next week. And so call our church office this week so we can make provision for that uh, during our service next Sunday. And so we're really excited to celebrate this ever important milestone in the lives of our young people as they conclude one chapter of their lives and they begin another. Might we as a congregation help them to continue living the story that God has for them? Finally, I want to make mention of the fact, and you may have heard this uh, via email communication and through the video that Pastor Matt has shared over these last couple of days. We are so incredibly excited to reconvene in-person worship, in worship services that will start effective Sunday, June 14th. Sunday, June 14th, and the times for those worship services are going to be as follows, at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. Please know that we have put a lot of thought, prayer, 
and consideration into how to do this so that we can appropriately social distance ourselves from one another. The organizing principle for all of our decision-making has been the health and safety of our congregation. And so that is the reason we have chosen these times, so we can have some extra time between services to effectively clean and sanitize the entire church building before we transition into the second service. And so we are going to ask you, out of respect for the health and safety of your neighbor and your brother and sister in Christ, to register for church. And all of those details will be forthcoming to you through postal mail, through email, through the video that I mentioned that Pastor Matt put together a few days ago. So make sure that you read through and watch all of those communications that are coming your way about this really exciting thing uh, when we reconvene together for in-person worship services on June 14th at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. Isn't that a reason to praise God? Isn't that a reason to say amen or woohoo or like fist pump? Okay, you get the point. But anyways, we are so excited to see you in person next week and then here in the building on June 14th. And so on that note, let's pray and enter, enter into a time of worship together. Let's pray. God in heaven, may our lives fully express your goodness unto us. Turn our hearts to you as we declare these words. I will sing for your glory, shout out your praises every day that I live. Till the world hears your story, I'll shout out your glory every day I live. Lord, help us to do this every day because we are your witnesses. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him this morning. God, we want to give you glory.
declare it. We want our praise to be your welcome and our songs to be a sign. Let our praise be your welcome. Let our songs be a sign. We are here for you. We are here for you. Let's ask him. Let your breath come from heaven. Fill our hearts with your life we are here for you we are here for you to you our hearts to you our hearts are to see your word moving in power. We want to see the things that are dead in life coming back to life. But we know it's by your power, by yours alone, because as Otto read this morning, you took the cross, you went to the grave, and you overcame the grave. You hold the power. You're the one seated on the throne this, mor this morning not just on the heavenly throne, Lord, but you're seated on the throne of our hearts. And when we enthrone you in our hearts, Lord,
we allow you to do the miracles in our lives. We ask you to do the miracles in our lives, the things that are too big for us, which is just about everything. But nothing's too big for you because you are a great God. You are a holy God. And for that, we worship you this morning. Father God, you made the heavens and the earth and everything that is in them. Your greatness is beyond comprehension. The amazing thing to comprehend about your greatness 
is your willingness to give so many chances to us to reconnect with you. You don't throw us away. You don't forget about us. You don't dismiss us. But rather, you see us where we are. And you meet us there. There are some listening this morning that need to know that you see them. You are fully aware of their situation. My prayer is that may you remind them that you are a great God and your greatness is in their midst. James tells us that when we draw near to God, that God will draw near to us. You are near to us right now, Father God. Continue to be near to us. We are watching and listening today because we want to be near to you that we might know how great is our God. Thank you for being near to us, our great God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and thank you for these things. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, once again, thank you for worshiping with us today. You know, as I think about this idea of God being near, I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. You know them well. Where he said, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is my prayer for you. It is my prayer for all my friends on this stage. It's my prayer for myself that you and I will be absolutely convinced that nothing can separate you from his love. And I have to tell you, that is a main message of our church, which is that God will always be working to remove all the barriers that prevent you from knowing this very important truth. So con to continue spreading this very important truth, uh, we need your help to do this. And one way that you can help is by continuing to give to the ministry of Victory Life Church. And so if you have come prepared to give of your tithes and offerings, please know that we've made it very easy for you. Uh, you can give online at vlchurch.com backslash give. And you can scroll down to the box that says give here. Click on that and follow the prompts. Or you can also text the message VLC3833 to the number 73256. Follow the prompts, and it's very easy to do it from that point forward. Well, once again, thank you for giving so that we can continue telling God's story to the world around us. Can we pray together? Father God, we are witnesses of your greatness. We pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to tell your story with boldness to the world around us. So take these resources that we give and demonstrate your greatness with them. They are yours. So please, do what you want with them. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, welcome back, Victory Life. Uh, we are hoping that this will be the absolute last time we have to pre-record our service for you. Next week, of course, as Pastor Otto mentioned, June 7th, we'll be having a great service out in the lawn, and bring your lawn chairs. It might be a little wet, so bring your boots, and uh, we'll have a great time together. And then, of course, on the 14th, 
Uh, this video equipment that we're using, we'll be using to live stream, but we hope that if you feel able, you'll be able to join us in the building either at 9.30 or 11.15. Please, you can start registering for those service weeks, week after next. About 10 years ago, there was a workout program that was all the rage. You probably remember it, P90X. Yeah, you weren't cool unless you were working out with Tony Horton. That's what we discovered about 10 years ago. Tony Horton had this phrase. He probably didn't coin it, but he used it a lot. He would say, do your best and forget the rest. So as you were on your 487th half push-up uh, and dying on the floor, you'd think to yourself, well, this is my best, but those people on the video are doing a great job. There is a problem with that concept of do your best and forget the rest, especially when it comes to being a Christian. Because doing our best and forgetting the rest ties the best for our life to us as individuals, ties the best to our life and to our strength as mortal, fallible, changeable, sinful, ego-driven people. I don't know that I want my best for my life. I don't know that my best for my life would end up ultimately in my joy or my happiness. But as we've seen throughout the story of Abram and, and the life of faith here, we've seen that God is desirous that we tie the best for our lives to him, to his strength, to his power, to one who is infinite, infallible, unchangeable, righteous, and humble. That's who our God is. At the end of chapter 16 last week, we saw that Abram Sarai and this pawn in this agreement, Hagar, had experienced their best. They had tried to manipulate the promise of God and bring about their own ends. And 13 years took place between chapter 16 and 17. 13 years of apparent silence from God between the best that Abraham and Sarai had to offer until God intervenes. We find in chapter 17 that God still wants to give them his best. Yes, Ishmael will be the father of a multitude, but God's story of his best is not yet over. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. We'll be reading a huge swath of this passage because it is one of the most famous passages in all of the Old Testament. Let's read chapter 17, verse 1 and following. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I just want to stop on that everlasting possession idea for just a minute. It I was talking to my girls last night. We've been reading the book of Deuteronomy together before bed, and I was explaining to them that this everlasting possession thing is still in effect, that in 1948, after nearly 2,000 years of not being in possession of the land, the Jewish people once again lived and dwelled in the land of Canaan. It's interesting what God has done even down into the present day. Now, as you read chapter 17, and if you've been watching all of these messages the past seven weeks, you might say, haven't I heard this all before? I feel like God keeps iterating and reiterating this promise over and over and over again. But there are seven things that make the beginning of chapter 17 different from anything we've seen before. There's so much to learn from those seven things about what God is now doing, what God is doing in response to Abram and Sarai's best. He's now bringing his best to the fore, and he's going to establish with them a covenant that is based in his idea, not in their First, God identifies himself as El Shaddai, or God Almighty, as is translated in our Bibles. I think there was a famous song in the 80s, El Shaddai. I don't remember any of the words to it, but I'm sure someone sang it here for special music. El Shaddai is sort of an enigmatic term within the Old Testament. If you were to look at that root word Shaddai, El meaning God, Shaddai or Shaddai, if you were to look at that root, there are some people that says this, this means God the warrior, 
but that doesn't really fit the context. There's also some proof that it might mean God of the valley or God of the mountain, which are polar opposites, so I don't know how they both come out of the same word. But, but, but the fourth one, and the thing that I believe is most easily understood within the context, is this Shaddai root means sufficient or able. And so our English translators, uh, sort of being split between the idea of God of, of, of warrior power and God of sufficiency, have given us God Almighty. But I would say the best translation for 17 with the root words that we can gather in the Hebrew would probably be God saying to Abraham, listen Abraham, I am God the all-sufficient one. Walk before me and be blameless. So God identifies himself by a different code name, if you will. The second thing is God says, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. This is the first time that God speaks to the ethical requirements of being his servant. God has been operating in grace with Abram this entire time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Abram, along the way, has done some really faithful things. Abram's done some very faithless things. And Abram's certainly done some very sinful things. This is the first time that God addresses sin with Abraham. And he says, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. Interestingly enough, way back in the earlier part of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, it says that Noah was blameless. Noah was blameless. Noah was a righteous man. Abram is not being called a righteous man. In fact, God's saying, from now on, I want you to be blameless. Walk before me means to serve me. Be blameless means to act righteously. And this is the first time that God sort of makes a moral injunction. It's sort of interesting. Abram spent 23 years living in faith under Yahweh God, but this is the first time God says, you need to deal with your sin, Abraham. You need to deal with the person that you are. You need to deal with your ethics. Now, that's not to say that God had not required things of him in the past. This is just the first recorded time that this takes place. But I just want to make this very clear to you because this is an important delineation. The blamelessness or the righteousness of Abraham or Abram was not a prerequisite for God to give him grace. I want you to catch that. For God to do good things in the life of Abraham, Abraham's righteousness was not a prerequisite. But now... For God to continue to do good in the life of Abraham and his descendants, righteousness or blamelessness is going to be a requirement. God wants that from him. Walk before me and be blameless because this covenant is really going to come to bear in your life right now. And that's the third thing that takes place. God calls this my covenant. Back in 15, remember when those animals were split and God made the covenant as the smoking pot and the flaming torch? God walks through those animals. That was an ancient Near Eastern covenant that he was making. But this covenant, what he's doing in chapter 17 is his. Because what happened after God made that covenant in 15? Abram and Sarai go ahead and try to manipulate the covenant and bring about the covenant by their own means, by bringing Hagar into the picture. So God's made a covenant with them in 15. He hasn't laid out explicitly how everything's going to happen. Abram and Sarai take it into their own hands, and things become a hot mess. So God now says, this is my covenant. I'm going to spell it out for you, and I'm going to do it my way. Number four, God lays out specifically his covenant obligations. It's very specific in these first verses exactly what God's going to do. Six times he says, I have or I will This is what's incumbent upon me, Abram. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. God changes the name of Abram to Abraham. This is number five. Exalted father, Abram, now is father of the multitude, Abraham. When you change somebody's name, that implies belonging. That person belongs to you forever. That's why when we name our children, it's a a sacred right. I don't know if Elon Musk figured that out, but for us, it's a sacred right to name our children, all right? Because we are saying they belong to us. This is a transfer of ownership. God says, number six in this covenant, that's going to be everlasting. And the everlasting part is, is a huge deal. That the blessings that are going to be given to Abraham, Abram and Abraham are going to be to all of his descendants forever. That God is going to continue to move in grace upon those who follow Abram in faith. But then seventh is what we're about to read. This covenant is different because Abram's going to be required to do something now. You say, he always required to do something. God said, I want you to be righteous or I want you to be blameless. No, that's a requirement, but it's not the covenant. The covenant obligations come in verse nine. God's about to tell Abram, I will do all of these things. Abram, this is what I need you to do. Verse nine, and God said to Abraham, 
As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after which are after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. That's the covenant. That's Abraham's obligation. That's the as for you. God is going to do all of these things, make them exceedingly fruitful, make him a great nation, give him the land, do it in perpetuity. God's going to take care of his people. Abram, your responsibility and every male's responsibility among the community that calls themselves God's people is minor surgery. Now, for those of you who don't know what circumcision is, don't Google it. God bless you, that would be a huge mistake. What you need to do is ask a friend, ask a family member, ask a trusted associate what circumcision is if you're not sure. Suffice this to say, at, for this point, it's minor surgery. Now, this seems odd, but of course, the ways of God often seem odd. The ways of God often seem different to us, but the ways of God do have a meaning and they do have a purpose. Much in the same way the symbols of our covenant with God today are baptism and the Lord's Supper, this was the sign and symbol of the covenant between God and Abram and his descendants. You say, why circumcision? I don't get it. Well, it's about to be explained. Let's look at verse 15 and following. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, she shall not be called by her name Sarai any longer, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings, and peoples shall come from her. Then Abram fell face down, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, try to say shall Sarah ten times fast, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him, and I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham." God and Abraham have a little bit of crosstalk here, a little bit of communication gap. God says, listen, Abraham, it's miracle time. This is my covenant now. I'm going to do it my way. Your wife, who has been barren her entire adult life and who is now past childbearing years, she's going to bear you a son. That son is going to be the son of the promise. I'm going to do this. Abram laughs. Whether this was a laughter of derision or just a laughter of being overwhelmed, we don't know, but it still shows that there's a disconnect between Abraham and God. Abraham looks at God and goes, hey, I would just be okay if Ishmael would live before you. God says, no, that was not my plan. That is not my best. I have something bigger to do that you can't see, Abraham, something more massive to do in human history. You can't see it, but I can. My best is what's going to take place here. Your wife who is barren, your wife who has passed childbearing years, will bear a son, and just because you laughed, call him, he laughs, Isaac. That's what Isaac means. You said, Pastor Matt, I thought you were going to explain circumcision, right? You were going to explain why that whole thing's taking place. Well, it's just been explained. What's been the problem since really chapter 11? It's first mentioned in chapter 11. The sexual union between Abram and his wife Sarai has not produced children. The, 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 the Bible does not say that they were abstinent. The Bible says they could not have children. This has been the problem for all of these years. Not just the 23 years that they'd been in Canaan, but decades before that. And now God says, I am going to bless your union with a child. When it's completely obvious that even if you were to bring together all of the natural means of conception, it would not work. 
I'm going to do what's supernatural to establish my covenant. I'm going to do what's beyond the scope of human beings in order to fulfill my promise. And I am going to demonstrate once and for all that it is I that am the source of life. And it is I who am the source of all good things. And therefore, at the conjunction, if you will, at the spot of your sexual union, there will be a mark or a sign forever. That mark, that sign in your flesh will remind you that I am the source of life, that I am the source of the promise, that you are not sufficient to bring about my best for your life, but I am sufficient to do so. That mark, I want to be a mark forever, says God, for every male among you, that you would know that all of your life, all of your blessing, all of the good, all of the promise, all of the covenant does not originate with you, it originates with me, and it all started with a barren woman who was past childbearing years and her old husband. That's what God is establishing through the covenant of circumcision a reminder for all generations that he is the all-sufficient one and the source of life. People have often asked me, why did God make Abram and Sarai wait those 23 years in Canaan, 24 actually, before they ever had Isaac? Why? He wanted to prove definitively that it was him. Not just that Abram and Sarai had overcome barrenness by some miracle, but Abraham and Sarai had overcome barrenness and miracle of miracles being past the ability to have children. That's where God shows up. Now you might ask, why is there not a corresponding mark for women? Well, we have to remember in Jewish theology, the two shall become one flesh. That mark on the male body it is meant to denote the mark for all of God's people moving forward because the two shall become one flesh. There need be no corresponding physical reminder on a woman because the two shall become one flesh has overcome that particular idea. God has given that circumcision as a sign that he is who he says he is and his best is life and life in perpetuity. Now, this is so God, this whole thing. The fact that he waited. The fact that he waited to show that it was obviously him who had intervened here. The fact that he was going to give the rights of this promise not to a firstborn son, to a second, because in the world's eyes, the firstborn son is it, at least at that time in history. Now, I'm a secondborn son, so I'm all about this story, but the idea is, is, that, is that God is gonna do things that doesn't make sense to people, but in the long run, if you see God's plan, will make plenty of sense. It reminds you of verses in the New Testament like, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask for or imagine, Abraham says, oh, if Ishmael might live. And God says, no, I have something better. It reminds you of both the prophet and in the book of Corinthians where it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. No, it's, it's way beyond us. Once again in the prophet, the, the, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Your life and your future flow from God. There's no other source. And his best is often different than your best. The fact that his covenant, my covenant, says God, follows on the heels of this ridiculous manipulation by Abraham and Sarai shows us once again that even when we don't speak grace, God, or faith, God, still speaking grace, and even our best efforts to do our best pale in comparison to what is God's best. Now what do we take away from this? What, what can we do in our own personal lives to establish that we are after God's best, not just our best? And the fact of the matter is, there's not too much that Abram did to receive God's best. Of course, he, he operated in great acts of faith to go to Canaan to chase down Lot. We know that there were great acts of faith that, that took place, but God has wanted to give his best to Abraham before any of those acts of faith. But some things have changed. The terms of God's agreement with Abram have changed. 
And from some of those seven points we made, I want to bring out a couple of application points to us today. What does it mean for us? The first is this. When you take the covenant made in 15, the hot mess made in 16, and then the covenant made in 17, and you read them as one, you recognize that God gave Abram a visual sign in 15 of a covenant that he would understand. Abram took things into his own hands by means of Sarai and Hagar in chapter 16, and it did not go well. And then God establishes his terms of the relationship even stronger in 17. So if you watch that progression, you see that, that God was giving Abram a lot of grace and doing things the way that Abram would understand. Abram and Sarai make a hot mess. God has to get more explicit, more clear as to his will so that they won't mess it up again. So here's the first point to take away today. Allow God to set the terms of your relationship. We as human beings have an incredible way of taking control of our relationship with God and telling God exactly what the parameters of that relationship will be. We have this idea that we are firmly in control of our faith, firmly in control around the parameters of our Christianity. We set the boundaries. We set the parameters. We set the box. We look at God all the time and says, I'm going to control this. Even when God has given us a direct thing that we're supposed to do for him, oftentimes we directly put the box around it that makes sense to us. We tell God how often will don the doors of the church. We tell God just how involved we will be in the work of the church. We tell God just how much time we will give him. We will tell God what we will and won't do regardless of his call on our life. We let God know what we will and won't give him in terms of time and talent and treasure. We set the terms of our relationship with God. We tell God how we will worship him and how we won't. We let him know how we're going to express ourselves as a Christian and how we won't express ourselves as a Christian. You see, we love to set the terms of our relationship with God ourselves. And all the while, God is standing back, many times for years, going, I have something better for you if you would just cede control. You know the best thing that Abram did in this whole story? It's way back at the beginning of 17. When God showed up, he just fell on his face. It shows you he's maturing. It shows you that whatever God says and whatever God speaks, Abram's on board. He knows, perhaps because he's had 13 years of strife within his household, that whatever God's going to speak is going to be for his good, and he needs to get below it, under it, and submit to it. Will you allow God to be firmly in control of your faith? Would you allow God to be firmly in control of your relationship with him? Stop putting a box around what you will and will not do. Stop putting a box around what you will and won't believe. Stop putting a box around what you will and won't give and start to say, God, what is it that you want from me? Because I know if I submit myself to you, you have my best in mind. The second thing this morning that you can take away is to remember that righteousness is a part of your relationship with God moving forward. We've talked a lot about the fact that Abram and Sarai, Hagar even, Lot, they all make mistakes. They're all sinners. They all do things that we would look at and go, God should just write them off and let them go. But God does not. God speaks grace over and over and over again. And we've also learned that what God desires first and foremost from us is faith, to respond to his voice when God speaks, people move. Faith moves. That's what we're learning. But chapter 17 teaches us a new lesson, that as that faith moves, we should be growing in the ethical requirements of God Almighty, the all-sufficient one. Moving in the ethical requirements of Yahweh God, same God, I am that I am. And as God refines his relationship with us, They'll be more incumbent upon us in order to pursue looking and acting like him. 
as God's spirit comes upon us in faith, there's going to be fruit, the fruit of righteousness, that God does want us to be holy because he is holy, that God does want us to be blameless because he is blameless, and that God does want us, even as sinners, to pursue righteousness in honor of him who is righteous. Perhaps today you've been taking great solace in the fact that you can't run from the grace of God. You can't get outside the bounds of what God has for you, and that's true. But by a lifestyle that completely rejects God, you can walk away from promise. God does want you to behave righteously. It's not how he responds first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Nothing in there about being holy or righteous. God speaks grace first and often. But Jesus also said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Same Savior, same God. Righteousness is not a prerequisite, folks, for God to speak grace into your life. But when you start walking with God, he wants to grow you in your righteousness. Third and final thing, engage in the signs of God's covenant with you. Participate. I'm not going to read all about it. It's sort of an icky thing. But Abram and all his household is circumcised. Not anybody's idea of a good time. I thank God that the blood of the covenant that we are under today has already been spilled, and it's been spilled by Jesus Christ, our Savior. He told us to be baptized because it fulfills all righteousness. He told us to take communion in remembrance of him, signs of his covenant with us. So many visual and physical things that the Lord God has given us that we may walk before him and walk in his covenant. Sometimes we can look at the signs of our covenant as simple things, things that God really doesn't care about. But I would encourage you, if you have the time, to read all of chapter 17. God was so serious that his people engage in the signs of the covenant. Because it was a simple act of faith to remind them who they were and what God had done. And what God was going to do. Today, if you call yourself a Christian and have not yet been baptized, you need to do it. You need to be baptized. You say, how do, how do I even start that process? You call the church office or write an email, and you say, I want to be baptized. You send your favorite pastor or elder a text, I want to be baptized. It's that simple. God wants you to engage his covenant today just to tell him you're serious about it. And the next time you pull one of those little wafers out of the top of a prepackaged communion or break bread in your home or, by the grace of God, get it passed to you in a church service, remember that Christ has purchased for you a lot more and better things than a ton of offspring or a piece of land. God has purchased salvation for you and eternal life. Would not engaging with a full heart be an honor to him who has graced us with so much? So when next comes the time to take part in God's covenant signed for you, take part with a full heart because his promises to you are massive. I hope today that wherever you are, however you're engaging this service, you would ask the Lord, Lord, 
who's in control of my relationship with you? Lord, where is my desire or level of righteousness? I want to walk before you and be blameless. And Lord, may I never again engage in the trappings of Christianity without a full heart because you've done so much and required of me so little. It was the same in Abram's time as it is in ours. God speaks so much grace and asks us for whatever faith we can supply. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Abram and Sarai had created such problems for themselves, taken things into their own hands. Once again, you spoke grace into their life. Once again, you proved how long-suffering and patient you are. And you came into their life once again to give them your best. They tried their best, and it was a mess. But your best, Lord, was not about human effort. Your best was about your love and grace. I pray, Lord, that we would get out of the race of human effort and get into a relationship with you where we just want your best for us. One of faith, one that pursues righteousness, and one that engages in our faith the way you told us to, with simplicity but a full heart. Lord, it's not a brilliant message today. It's a simple one. But Lord, it is a true one. Take control now, Lord Jesus. May we walk before you and be blameless. And may we walk right into your best for our lives. God, if there's anything that's become so abundantly clear in these last seven weeks, it's that you want our faith to be living and active, to follow you where you send us, to move when you tell us to move. But Lord, even more than that, is how in spite of our faults and failures, you still bring your best to us. I pray, Lord, that in that recognition, in knowing just how good you are, that surrendering to you, yielding to your spirit, would not be a cause for fear, but be a cause for joy. I pray that over your people today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This week, my friends, I encourage you, Ask the Lord over and over again, Lord, who's in control of our relationship? Let him take control because he has his best in mind for you. We love you. We miss you. Hope we get to see you on the hillside next Sunday. God bless.